As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. It's Straight out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Coming up, it's our Big League Cup final preview pod. So crack open a Carabao and listen to us make a case for how Chelsea can beat Liverpool. Elsewhere, there's a new jewel in the Blues administrative crown and a quiz. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight Outta Cobham. Oh, what an exciting weekend we're in for then, gang. Chelsea looking to win their first piece of domestic silverware since 2018. Can they get the job done? Here to try and answer that question with me are two of the Athletics' very best. Hello, Luke Bosher. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm pretty well, thanks. Yeah, Liam Toomey's back on board as well. Liam, you psyched for Wembley? I am, yeah. Hopefully this headache has cleared by then. But uh, yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, large glass of Carabao is good for what ails you, so I'm told. Or, you know, maybe not. Never drank it personally. Uh, Okay, let's go big on uh, the big game at Wembley. Before we do that, though, I want to get some premature adjudications about the final. Something that we think is going to happen between Chelsea and Liverpool at Wembley on Sunday. Luke, I'll let you go first. I think that there is going to be a red card. Ooh, okay. Would you go any further? No. No. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good prediction. Liam, what have you got? I think Georgi Petrovic will score the winning penalty in a tense, tight, dramatic shootout and then whip off his goalkeeper's jersey to reveal Kepa's face on an undershirt. (laughs) All right. I thought you were either going to say he'll score a penalty or refuse to be subbed when the opposition are awarded a penalty. But there's lots of Kepa League Cup final bingo that we can go through. And my prediction, I'm going to say there are going to be two penalties awarded in the game, not in the shootout. Not saying to who, I just think it's going to be a penalty fest. Um, We shall see. Uh, Let's get a proper analysis of the match though next. Chelsea versus Liverpool in the League Cup final for the second time in two years. The 2024 final goes down at three UK time on Sunday. Uh, Luke, we'll talk about Liverpool and their various injury woes shortly. But in terms of of the Chelsea team news, we're not expecting Thiago Silva or Benoit Badia-Shield to be available for this game. Uh, Regardless of whether they were or not, would you be sticking with the same 11 that started against City last week? Yeah, I think I would. I think the way 
that team played against an opposition that is on paper superior to it was very promising uh, from a Chelsea perspective. And I think, you know, it was a great point one at the Etihad, but, you know, arguably on another, I know Chelsea had their backs to a wall for quite a lot of the second half, but it could have been three on another day. And I think it was a very, very credible performance from, from a lot of people. And I think even though it was, you know, broadly speaking, a very similar starting eleven to, you know, teams that we've seen Mauricio Pochettino play um, throughout this season, the way they were organised was different and more effective than, you know, for example, the last time Chelsea played Liverpool. I know the personnel that day was slightly different, but so yes, I, you know, it's a kind of long-winded way of saying, yeah, stick with what we got. I guess there's not too many places that are actually up for debate, are there, Liam? Because one that we've been talking about is is the Sterling versus Madweke battle over the last few weeks. But maybe Madweke's kind of limp first half at Palace and, and Sterling's goal at City have, have settled that debate. Well, I think they've both run a bit hot and cold this season. Madweke, that feels more just kind of baked into the experience based on the player he is at this stage of his career. I think he's a really... Really talented guy, but he's not necessarily showing that every single time he's on the pitch. Sterling, yes, he can be exasperating to watch, but he is more experienced and he and he has turned up in big games. As recently as last weekend, I thought he was good against City for the second time. And he has had his moments against Liverpool as well, though I, I although I think it was a bit of a running theme when he was at Manchester City that Liverpool fans like to needle him for not playing well against them. But I don't see a good reason why that wouldn't be the case or why that couldn't be the case this weekend. The one that Simon and I focused on in the conversation piece, we've had another one of our conversations, Matt, which will go up on The Athletic before the game, was Christopher Nkunku. Because I remember saying on the pod a few weeks ago that it it felt like Chelsea needed to use these games that we've just seen to really ramp him up and build up his his sharpness. And that hasn't really happened. And yet they haven't paid a, a big price on the pitch in terms of performance. They've actually been getting better. He still doesn't look, to me, quite sharp enough physically to, to risk starting, particularly in a unit that seems to be functioning pretty well as a collective now. I think maybe you have him as the ace up the sleeve on the bench and hope that he can, as he's already done a couple of times this season, come off the bench in the second half and, and really impact things if you need him to. Yeah, I think just going back to the um, the Sterling versus Madueke thing, I think the interesting one there is obviously how it impacts Cole Palmer. And I think Cole Palmer's best position for Chelsea or most, most effective position for Chelsea is on that right-hand side. And that's kind of where... Madweke tends to operate or it's, that's basically the only position where Madweke can play so you can kind of play Madweke and and Sterling because you play Sterling on the um, on the left-hand side but it's quite hard to fit Madweke and Palmer into the same team because you know they like to to occupy those same spaces I think maybe the last started together I haven't got it in front of me in the Palace game just before Man City um, where Palmer sort of began the game up front and I think that was a game where Madueke got hooked at half time because he was slightly ineffective and I think it's a bit of a 
I say problem, but it, it's a bit of an issue for Pochettino at the moment, working out how to how to get the best out of those two when when they're on the pitch together. But certainly for this game, yeah, I think I think Madueke takes his place on the bench, so so Palmer can play on that right hand side. Mm, yeah, all about getting the best out of Palmer, as we've spoken about. Um, Liam, I think maybe. Villa and Manchester City, and to a lesser extent, Palace have kind of mitigated our terror about what happened at, at Anfield last month. But but how much of a bearing do you think that game will have on this one? I, I guess perhaps not too much. I mean, I'm looking at Chelsea's back four from that night. It was Dizazi right back, Thiago Silva and Badia Shiel as centre-halves and Chilwell left back. And only, only one of those is going to be playing in that position this time. And and the other thing I suppose that's important is, is getting a grip on on midfield because Enzo and Caicedo really struggled to do that against Liverpool last month. Yeah, I, d- I don't see why that would have such a, a big impact or a big residual memory in the minds of these Chelsea players. I think that game existed in a very particular context. It was a couple of days after Jurgen Klopp had announced he was leaving. There was this swell of emotion at Anfield, which can be a very emotional place. And Klopp and his team are exceptionally good at harnessing that emotion and just creating a real whirlwind intensity. That's that's what came through that night. I wasn't at the game, Simon was there, but he, you know, he seemed to get the same impression and it overwhelmed Chelsea. It can overwhelm a lot of teams. What I would say is I think it's a lot harder for Liverpool to do that at Wembley when they've only got half the stadium in red. And I think we've we've seen in the in the two cup finals against Liverpool in in the Tuchel season, it was more of an ebb and flow. There were moments when Liverpool were able to do that, but it was only for stretches of the game. And then at other times of the game, Chelsea were able to really impose themselves. Now this is a completely different Chelsea team, and we don't know how so many young players are going to react to a showpiece occasion, a final and the pressure of that and the the stakes of that. But talent wise, I don't see why they can't make this an interesting game given the way they've been performing recently. And given the fact that maybe for the first time this season, Chelsea will be the less injured team, it seems, <laughs> than their opponents. Yeah. I mean, we've still got a few days of, of training at Cobham for that to change. So let's just touch wood as we say that. Um, on that that overwhelmment point, overwhelmment, not a word, I'm sure, uh, Luke, that Liam makes about Anfield last week. Have you, have you got any concerns that the occasion might overwhelm some of these less experienced Chelsea players? And if so, how important are your, your Ben Chilwells and your Raheem Sterling's going to be to try and mitigate against that with their experience? You know, I sound like a football manager here, but I, I think with any you know big game cup final like this, you always naturally look to the more experienced members of the squad to kind of guide the younger players. But you know, maybe you know you'd also look to someone like Enzo Fernandez as well, who's you know played at a World Cup for Argentina in in some incredibly hostile atmospheres. Um, you know, both pro and anti Argentina um, during that tournament, in, including the final. So I, you know, he's certainly one that you can look to as well and. I think as Liam says, because the stadium, you know, will in theory be 50-50 and it will be a daytime game rather than under the lights, I think it will be a slightly more forgiving atmosphere. I think it's I think it's one of those where it's way more dependent on how the team starts and how the game ebbs and flows rather than, you know, the atmosphere dictating how the game goes, if that makes sense. I think it's you know, again, as with any 
game, it's important to start well. But I think, you know, a cup final in particular, just to kind of get the fans on side and, and quell any nerves, I think. I'm not particularly worried, to be honest, about this Chelsea team wilting under the pressure because I think they've actually done well in, in you know, maybe last Anfield trip aside, but they've done well in some of their big away games this season. So uh, I think that bodes well for this match. So do you think then that, Liam, that the plan will be to kind of be on the front foot from the off or will it be more counter-attack based like we saw at the Etihad? Well, I don't think the game plan will be the same as it was against City because Liverpool aren't the same as City. They attack you in different ways. And, you know, the way I've described it in the in the conversation I had with Simon is that City want control and they want superiority through control, whereas it feels like a lot of the time Liverpool want chaos. That's where they do best by kind of breaking the systems, well, breaking the system of the other team of what they want to do and just doing slightly unpredictable things. Now, that's a bit of a generalisation because... Klopp is an incredibly smart, sophisticated manager and, and Liverpool are a very sophisticated team in their own right. But they do attack in a slightly more chaotic, unpredictable way. Maybe that's just Darwin Nunes, I don't know, who might not even be playing. But Chelsea will have to have a, a slightly different game plan. Now, the one thing that I think is similar is that both Liverpool and City look to really generate overloads in wide areas and that will be the case against Liverpool regardless of whether Trent Alexander-Arnold is playing if it's Connor Bradley as we saw at Anfield he is very capable of getting down that side and doing damage as well so I think what we will need to see is something that we we did see against City and against Aston Villa actually is the wingers coming back to help the fullbacks because on Chelsea's most unbalanced looking days this season. That kind of area is where they've been a bit overwhelmed at times. And if they've got wingers that are prepared to work defensively as hard as they are going forward, then they, they'll have a chance of, of staying balanced. And then I think we've seen under Pochettino more generally, but specifically against City, when they can generate turnovers, which of course is what Liverpool want to do to you. If you can do that to them, I think they're even more vulnerable than City are in defensive transition because they they press so aggressively that if you can actually get through that, either by passing or by turning them over when they're on the front foot, there could be real space for the likes of Jackson and Sterling to exploit. And Palmer, as we know, can pick those passes. So I think there will be space for Chelsea to attack. They just need the composure and the, the tactical game plan to be able to set the foundation for that. So, Liam, you led me down the path there of saying, does that mean that this might be a game for Mikhailo Mudrik? But then you said composure and tactical plan. So maybe you talk yourself out of that there. Yes, if you're looking at raw speed, he can be something that has to be accounted for in a game like this. But I think we're just at the point now where until further notice, until we get evidence otherwise, we have to assume that he's not at the level of tactical understanding required to play in a game like this. There's a reason why Pochettino didn't even consider bringing him off the bench against Manchester City when they were pushing everything forward at the Etihad. You know, in theory, that was a good time to bring him on to try and 
give City something to think about the other way. But Pochettino clearly doesn't trust him to make the right decisions and to play to a system with and without the ball. And I don't see why that would change at Wembley with with so much on the line. Play this on Monday when he scores the uh, winning goal in the 119th minute after making a really smart decision. Let's hope so. Uh, so Liverpool then, Luke, they had to play on Wednesday night and they needed to come from behind as well to beat Luton. These absentees that we've referenced, Jota, Jones, Alisson, although he wouldn't have played anyway, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Saboslai, Matip and Thiago Alcantara, who hasn't played for months slash years, so we can kind of count him out. Uh, Nunez is a doubt. Salah didn't feature last night. There's no better time to play Liverpool than this, is there? Given the fact that Chelsea have had the free week and they've got these injuries, it couldn't really have fallen any better for them other than, I don't know, Salah tripping up and tweaking his hamstring on the way to the stadium on Sunday. Yeah, that just makes me slightly wary though, Matt. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, seeing the score last night, Liverpool going 1-0 down against Luton was a bit of a surprise. But then, you know, the second half performance, they absolutely blew them out of the water. And that is, you know, they're carrying great momentum there, arguably into the into the final on Sunday. And, you know, that was a Liverpool team where Klopp clearly, you know, felt like he could get away with resting some key players. You know, Andy Robertson didn't start. Ibrahim Konate, who will start, didn't even, you know, make the pitch. And, you know, just how good a coach Jurgen Klopp is and how well this squad has been built over the last you know, it's, you know, the culmination of nine years worth of great squad building and, and coaching. I think it's still a very fearsome team. And as we've seen with, you know, throughout the season, you know, Liam mentioned Connor Bradley there, you know, his cut, you know, from an outside Liverpool perspective, I know Liverpool fans were very excited about him in preseason, but from an outsider's perspective, he's kind of come from nowhere and is, you know, suddenly now people are talking about him, you know, like he's a, you know, Premier League ready, one of the best fullbacks in the league type player. And you've got someone like Harvey Elliott, who can come in and start and contribute really well. Ryan Gravenberch, great summer addition, I think. And Alexis McAllister, now playing slightly further forward, was really good at the weekend, I thought. It's still a pretty fearsome team, I think, and they will carry that momentum from Luton. So it'll be interesting. But as you say, it's benefited Chelsea that for some reason the Liverpool-Luton game was moved forwards uh, because I think it was meant to be scheduled this coming weekend and got brought forward for some reason and the Chelsea Tottenham game has just not been given a date yet so yeah we'll see I'm always I'm kind of wary about placing too much emphasis on this this break in between games because I think when Liverpool get a result like they did on Wednesday night it can prove to be you know good source of momentum uh, more than anything else yeah and we've seen Chelsea put in some pretty flat performances after they've had a, a free week this season as well. So maybe it won't mean too much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Liam, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the ramifications of either victory or defeat for Chelsea. And that ties nicely in to your piece, which is up on The Athletic today, about whether Chelsea can afford to win the Carabao Cup. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's a slightly facetious headline, which I fed into because that's my style. But the, the thrust of the piece was that by qualifying for the UEFA Conference League playoff round, which is what Chelsea would do by winning this competition, they would put themselves back under the financial auspices of UEFA. And it's no longer FFP, it's now FSR. We're in the brave new world of of acronyms. The financial sustainability regulations that UEFA introduced in the summer of 2022 
And they're a lot stricter than the Premier League controls. PSR, which is what we've heard a lot about in recent months with Everton, Nottingham Forest. Chelsea have managed to stay on the right side of PSR so far, albeit narrowly for their most recent set of accounts. They insist that they will be fine and they intend to comply with all of football's relevant financial controls. But for PSR, you're allowed to lose 105 million over three years. For UEFA's FSR, you're allowed to lose up to 80 million euros or about 68.5 million pounds over two years as of next season. So actually qualifying for Europe would lessen Chelsea's wiggle room financially. And, you know, the opinion of most people outside Chelsea, including Swiss Ramble, excellent football finance analyst, is that Chelsea have work to do to meet PSR next year. And that might involve selling players before June 30th. Is that Armando Breuer's music? <laughs> so that that that's part of this equation. The other part of the equation, if Chelsea get into the Conference League, into UEFA competition, is that their signings from the summer of 2023 actually become more expensive on the accounts, not in real terms, but on the accounts. Because I'm sure you'll remember UEFA brought in this amortisation cap at five years, closing the Chelsea loophole, as it was dubbed, in the summer of 2023. The Premier League did the same, but they didn't do it until January of this year, the most recent transfer window. So there's a bit of a regulatory lag time going on where Chelsea signed 11 players in the summer of 2023. 10 of which were on contracts longer than five years. Axel Dezassi was the only exception. And so for Premier League purposes, you can still spread those transfer fees over however long the contract is. So Moises Caicedo, 100 million over eight years, fine. 12.5 million a year on the accounts for the Premier League. For UEFA, because the five-year cap was brought in, he cost 20 million the moment Chelsea are back in Europe per year on the account. And that applies to nine of the other 10 <laughs> signings in that window. I hope you're all still with me. Uh, so the bottom line is that Chelsea's business in the summer of 2023 becomes about £20 million more expensive on the books for UEFA once they're back in European competition. So you're getting squeezed at one end in terms of the amortised cost of your signings and you're getting squeezed at the other end in terms of the amount you're about allowed to lose. And with the Conference League, Chelsea are only looking at making about £16 million if they win the whole thing, which is what West Ham made. So is it worth it, essentially? Could they sit down and do a deal with UEFA where they're like, you know what, we'll sit out European competition this year, focus on the league, take that as our punishment and then maybe make a run at the Champions League or at the very least the Europa League for the following year and get back in when our accounts are in a little bit better order. Now, I have to insist again that Chelsea are adamant they will comply with all the football's financial regulations. But that's what the piece was about, was trying to encompass all of that and talking about the the, the strange, bizarre considerations that the Bowley clear late transfer spending has led to. 
Well, UEFA might not mind if Chelsea dip out of the Conference League because that competition is just going to end up getting dominated by mid-table Premier League teams by the look of it, which is not really what they want. But let's not forget, if Chelsea do win, they'll get the, whatever it is, 50 quid and a crate of Carabao prize money so they can put that towards the costs as well. Uh, Luke, what about the ramifications of a victory or defeat for specifically Maurizio Pochettino? Can he afford to finish mid-table in the Premier League if they lose on Sunday. And I guess the other thing is that makes Leeds on Wednesday twice as important, right? So th- this is huge for, for the Chelsea coach as much as anybody. Yeah, I think it's just, it's very difficult now looking at, at the Premier League table. And I know there's lots of context you can apply to this, but looking at the Premier League table and saying that, you know, a, a mid-table finish is, is, you know, really that bad because the way... The Premier League is because of you know the finances and the level of players and coaches that the league can attract. Is there's so many good teams in the league, and I think Chelsea have found that out you know to their detriment over the last couple of seasons. But it's it's you know the way it's shaking up now. If Chelsea win you know the Carabao Cup, that means only the top six teams will get European football, which means you're looking at you know as it stands, Brighton and Newcastle both missing out on European qualification next year. And obviously, if Chelsea lose and, and Liverpool win, then that will drop to seven. So Newcastle would miss out. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that like a like mid-table finish, and I know Chelsea are 10th at the moment and below even you know West Ham, who are somehow up in arms about how bad David Moyes is, which I don't fully understand. But yeah, I, th- I think a mid-table finish is fine. I think given how much you know, personnel change that there's been at Chelsea over the last kind of 12 to 18 months. I think it's clear that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, the season has ebbed and flowed for Chelsea quite dramatically in, in some senses, you know, thinking about the Wolves-Liverpool double defeat. I think it's clear that Pochettino is building something. You know, I sort of hesitate to use that cliche, but I think I think there is something tangible there. And I think, you know, more time at the club is, is only going to, you know, help that situation. So I think winning the Carabao Cup certainly doesn't give him a free pass for the rest of the season, obviously, but I think it would certainly cushion the blow of, you know, an eighth, ninth, tenth place finish, um, you know, kind of look to build for next year. It's quite difficult, Liam, isn't it, to contextualise what it means because it didn't stop Eric Ten Hag from being under incredible scrutiny for, for most of this season, winning the Carabao last season. But but from Poch's perspective, he hasn't won anything domestically in England. And even the titles that he won with PSG, people put the caveat next to that of, well, so what? Everybody wins the league with PSG. So in terms of his own CV, this is massive for him. Yeah, I think it is. And I think you've seen that in in recent weeks with the way that Pochettino has pushed back every time that that Tottenham quote about domestic cups only being good for your ego the quote that was attributed to him at Spurs which he still disputes and says was you know kind of taken out of context every time that's been presented to him he's pushed back pretty hard on it and he does also mention his achievements at PSG when prompted. So it it clearly does annoy him that he's seen as this trophyless wonder of a coach or this guy who builds nice teams but doesn't win. And he knows because he said it when he first turned up at Chelsea, the culture of Chelsea is winning. It's not, you know, playing nice football. It's not it's not getting moral victories, it's getting actual victories and lifting trophies. And so he he wants to 
reflect that culture and that history and burnish his own legacy. What I would say is, you know, I, th I think in terms of the evaluation of his job by ownership, by the, the co-sporting directors, I'm not sure how much the League Cup will move the needle either way. Clearly, it can't hurt him to win it. But I think ultimately he'll be judged on on bigger picture things about how the team's progressing, the league position, just the, the general sense of the trajectory under his leadership come the summer. But I, I do think that this is still really important. It's important for him. It's It's really important for this group of players as well. Most of them have won nothing as senior professionals. Certainly not collectively, but even individually at their previous clubs. And in the case of someone like Cole Palmer, you know, he's he's got a fair few trophies to his name at Manchester City, but he wasn't a key part of those teams. So I think this is really important to a lot of these a lot of these guys. And we've seen on numerous occasions in the past, not least with Mourinho's first spell at Chelsea, that this this trophy can be a bit of a platform for a group that's on the up that you, you get that taste of winning. You get that bond that comes from succeeding together. And it can spur you on to, to bigger and better things. So I, I think it's a it's a huge game. And it's and it's huge for the fans as well, I think. It's been a punishing couple of years for them in terms of everything that's happened at the club and all of the change. And the general sense of disconnect now, which we've written about many times. And Victory has a way of salving wounds, even if it doesn't fix everything. It has a way of making everything feel a bit better. And so I think uh, it's really important this weekend on a number of levels for Chelsea. Sure is, yeah. So it's a half three kickoff at Wembley. Yeah, it could be the start of a great week with Leeds in the Cup fifth round on Wednesday as well. But it's all about the Carabao this weekend. So good luck to Chelsea. And we will, of course, be reacting to it next week. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Elsewhere in Chelsea news, David Ornstein reporting in The Athletic on Tuesday that Brighton and Hove Albion head of recruitment Sam Jewell has accepted an offer to join Chelsea in a senior position. He's only 34, expected to start in a global role across Chelsea's owner's multi-club model around November after serving his notice period. He's the son of Paul, the former Wigan and Moore manager. What else can you tell us about this move and what it means for Chelsea then, Liam? Well, we've been saying for... A 
for the last few weeks that we've been told Chelsea were planning more hires to build out their sporting structure, reporting into Paul Winstanley and Lawrence Stewart. And this is another step in that process. We also saw Josh Marsh come in from, from Swansea as, as loans manager. So that process is ongoing, but I think Sam Jewell's a key hire, um, or at least Chelsea view him as a key hire. They move for him now because I think there was a there was a fear that once Dan Ashworth is in the door at Manchester United, that he would look to take Jewel with him because they've got a very good relationship and worked together previously at Brighton. It's even possible maybe that Newcastle might turn around and, and offer Jewel the keys to their sporting operation. Who knows? Um, I think it's a bit too early to say on that front, but he had good options. He's well regarded in the industry. Clearly, Paul Winstanley knows him well. It was quite interesting when Chelsea hired Win Stanley, the impression that we got from Brighton, and maybe you, you could say they would say this, is that you know there, there wasn't a massive amount of concern at losing Win Stanley because they had Jewel to step up and they really, really rated him and the progress that he'd made within their operation as a as a talent identifier. And I think you can see Brighton have continued to do broadly a very, very good job in that area. So It'll be a while before we see him at Cobham. Apparently, the uh, the arrangement at the moment is for him to serve a lengthy notice period and join, I think, towards the end of the year, maybe around November. Maybe that can be negotiated down, but I can't imagine that Brighton will be massively keen for him to come into Chelsea during the summer window. And this is a consideration with the Dan Ashworth situation as well where Newcastle do not want him taking the knowledge of their summer window plans to Manchester United. David Ornstein's reference this as well. There seems to be a transfer window within the transfer window for these highly coveted recruitment people now. It feels like a pretty interesting dynamic to hire these guys sometimes seven, eight months ahead of time. And they're basically getting paid to not work before going to competitors. It's a strange thing that's happening, but it's happening around the Premier League. And Chelsea ultimately feel like they've got another really bright mind here to come in and further boost their recruitment for future windows. I think we should do an audit of these guys' gardens when they start their new job and see they've actually been putting that time to good use. Luke, you're our resident news hound. How hyped are you about this edition of yet another transfer window, but this time involving administrative staff? I mean... I punched the air, Matt, when uh, the news came through. It such was my delight at getting such a such a, a young talent in through the door. Um, yeah, I do. I do wonder if these guys all on their gardening leave will just like hang out and compare notes. Maybe I don't know. This is ace, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should we go for a cream tea? Lovely. Start going to the pub at like midday or something. <laughs> but no, yeah. As Liam says, I think he's he's very highly rated within the industry. If that means anything because obviously everyone wants you to believe that the players and staff that they're getting are highly rated it's why clubs do it all the time especially in the this is a real tangent but EFL clubs do it all the time you know like Wickham Wanderers have secured the loan signing of a highly rated talent or you know they've beaten off several interests from several other EFL clubs it's like you're just you're just saying that it just <laughs> doesn't make it true just once Luke just once I want to see a major club hire someone for their for their recruitment department or into a prominent role and then we get the brief yeah his name's dirt no, <laughs> everyone everyone thinks he's rubbish yeah, yeah. around the industry he was just available 
that's it. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking for a six out of ten staff member. He's not going to rock the boat and not going to want a promotion. So this is where we uh, we landed up. Oh, it's a brave new world. Uh, back on the pitch on Wednesday night, the under-18s went to Millwall in the quarterfinals of the FA Youth Cup. Unfortunately, they were beaten on penalties after a one-all draw. Michael Golding and Leo Cardoso, the unlucky chaps from the spot. Let's hope that's not a precursor for Sunday. Uh, better news on the under-21s. They're in action on Monday. They won 2-0 at Leeds in PL2. Leo Castledine and Ronnie Stutter got the goals. They're both having great seasons. Stutter, in particular, is in really good form. 3-3 three and three for him. All excellent goals. Worth seeking out. They go to Middlesbrough on Friday lunchtime. You can watch that one on the Chelsea app with me if you like. It's a one o'clock kickoff. Women's team-wise, not such good news. Me official, the latest to fall victim to the ACL curse. The American sustained the injury on international duty, so that's her season done. Uh, good job Myra Ramirez was brought in, Liam, but boy, there's some pressure on her now, isn't there? Because that's it in terms of out-and-out strikers for Chelsea. Yeah, and it, again, it's just brutal. These ACL injuries in women's football, absolutely incredible how common it is. And obviously, every time it happens, it's devastating for the individual and completely distorting in terms of the fortunes of teams and seasons. I mean, uh, I think last year, Arsenal were the team that were hit hardest in the WSL, weren't they? And it, and it was crazy, like two or three of their, their best players went down at the same time or with overlapping ACL injuries. And this year, it seems to be Chelsea's turn and it, and it struck them in one particular area of the pitch with Sam Kerr and now me official. Um, so yeah, lots of pressure on Myra Ramirez. If her... Recent contributions are anything to go by. She's she seems to be talented enough to be up up to the challenge, but it's a big challenge. You might even go as far as to say that that Chelsea's WSL defence kind of depends on her not just staying fit, but but providing a fairly steady source of goals now. Plus any hope of capturing that Champions League holy grail, although that already looked slightly forlorn with with Sam Kerr on the sidelines. Yeah, lots of pressure on Hannah Hampton too. Now she's Ramirez translator. Hampton um, grew up in Spain. She was at the Villarreal Academy. So she's got to uh, really get the communication going between Myra and her teammates. Um, speaking of communication, that leads me nicely to the quiz. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Lucy's going to score this one because there's been some criticism of um, my point keeping. So, pen and paper ready, please, Miss Oliva. Here we go. This is all kind of League Cup final related, obviously. 
Liam, I'm going to give you the caveat that you're playing through the pain of a headache. So you're not in great form anyway, but you're really up against it today. You do get to go first, though. Um, I don't know if it's like penalty shootouts where the person who goes first has a much better chance of winning, but we shall see. Oh, Lucy's got a post-it note. So this is really serious. Ah, yeah, that's a much better table than the one I normally draw. Am I answering towards my fans? <laughs> um, no. Because that's important to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, here we go. How many times have Chelsea won the League Cup? Oh, uh, I don't think it happened before my lifetime. So, I mean, yeah, I was I was at one that they won before the Abramovich era. Um, I don't think they've won it anywhere near as many times as the FA Cup in the Abramovich era. Um, this is great stalling from Liam because Luke's got to go to the meeting <laughs> in ten minutes, so he can just win on a technicality. Here. Well, the, yeah, this is like the this is like the test the match bit. cricket yeah. approach. Um, I'm going to say three times. Luke, do you want to steal it? Was it within the Abramovich era? Sorry, or was I no, didn't no, really just in the club's like, history? How many times have they won the League Cup? Uh, not three, five. <laughs> five is correct. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> 1965, 1998, 2005, 2007, 2015. Chelsea did exist before Roman Abramovich, Liam. Specific questions like that it's better to go second because you have the guidance of the first incorrect guess. That's all I'll say. Yeah, or, you know, could say it's better to just get it right, but um, that would be rude. Right, Luke, here's your first question. Chelsea could do the League Cup and FA Cup double this season. They've only done that once before. In what season was it? Uh... Have I deliberately made Luke's questions really hard this week? It's not for me to say. Feels like you might have done. Mm. It does feel like you might have done. Um, I, f I really don't know um, is the honest answer. So I'm going to try and pick a season at random where I'm pretty sure Chelsea won at least one of the Cups. Um, so I'm going to go with... I'm going to go 9-10. Liam, you can steal it. Is it 2007? As in 06-07 or 07-08? No, 06-07. Yes, it is. Well done. 1-1. One, one. Did they beat Arsenal in the League Cup final that year? Was he, yeah, was like that the, the, the Arsenal the under Walcott? 12s? Yeah, John Terry watched the final from hospital or whatever, got the kick in the face. Because I remember the FA Cup final that season, not the League Cup final. Anyway, Luke needs to go soon, so <laughs> let's get on and beat me. So here's question two for you, Liam. You're on form. Prior to the 2022 final, the last time the teams met in the League Cup was at Anfield in the third round in 2018. Chelsea won 2-1. Eden Hazard scored that brilliant goal. But who got the other Chelsea goal that night? For some reason... My mind is telling me Emerson. This might be the day, ladies and gentlemen, because Emerson is absolutely right. Wow. People just gasping into their devices all over the world right now. Here's your second question, Luke. Bit of pressure on you. Kepa missed the final penalty in the 2022 final shootout, but who took Chelsea's first kick in said penalty competition? 
first. <laughs> uh... <laughs> it had become too easy for you, the quiz, Luke. I mean, this seems harsh. It seems like a really <laughs> harsh question. Uh, I'm going to go with... I mean, I assume he was Chelsea's... Pre well, he could have gone a lot. I, I don't know. I'd go with Jorginho, because I think he was the number one penalty taker at the time. It's not right. Liam, do you know who it was? I don't know, but I'll guess. Did Azpilicueta go first as captain? He did not. It was Marcos Alonso. Uh, Lucy points out that Jorginho took the fifth one, Luke. Yeah, that makes sense. So it was either you'd either have done the first or the fifth, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's how you it don't works. want to end up being Cristiano Ronaldo not getting to take one though, so it's always a bit of a risk. Right. Couple of minutes to go. Liam, final question of regulation time. Which player has scored Chelsea's first and most recent goals in this season's Carabao Cup? So same player scored the first goal of the competition and the last goal of the semi final second leg. Oh God. Who scored the sixth goal in this? <laughs> against Middlesbrough and remember it was Wimbledon they played in the first round not Charlton or whatever it was he said last week yeah a team that plays in red <laughs> Wimbledon red <laughs> that was a low point um, was it Enzo Fernandez? it was not Enzo Fernandez. Luke do you know? was it um, I, th I, I think I don't really remember the Wimbledon game but I think so I remember, I think Palmer got his brace against Borough. And then I th I think it was this way around. It was either Palmer got his brace and then Madweke scored or Madweke scored and then Palmer got his brace. So I th I'm going to go with Madweke. Oh, it's correct. Nonny Madweke. What, what's the score, Lucy, at the moment? It is 2-2. Two, two. All right. So, Luke, if you get this right, you've won. Who scored the winning goal for Chelsea in extra time of the 2015 semi-final against Liverpool at Stamford Bridge? Uh, uh, it's not a, it's not a game I remember that well. I'll go with Diego Costa. Liam, steal it, win it. Uh, Twenty fifteen semi final. I have no recollection of this game. <laughs> Just, it's just not there. Okay, we've got three minutes till Luke's meeting, so I'm tempted to give you a clue here. I'll give you, I'll tell you what. No, no, no clue. He said no clue. <laughs> no clues, no clues. Come on. No clues. I'll sink on my own merits. Thank you. <laughs> um, 2015. I'm going to say Hazard. The answer was Branislav Ivanovic. That's that's so rogue. I never, never the, would have got that. Scourge it of was Liverpool. The Mourinho. He has lots of blood, and the boot is completely full of red blood. It should go straight to the academy. Said afterwards. That, so can I just say I, that was unbelievable, Matt? That, just, you nailed that. <laughs> Thanks. Him and Steve Bruce, the only ones I can do. I was going to say we should do a quiz, not to. We should do a quiz of just guessing your impressions. I am great. totally up for that. I think Lucy would <laughs> definitely veto it, and certainly somebody senior at the Athletic would, because uh, legal <laughs> might have a big issue with it. But maybe we can do an uncut one one week. Right, we've got one minute for an answer on this. Please uh, message me privately on WhatsApp. What was the average viewership for the 2022 final? Send your complaints to L Oliva for this question, please. 
So not wait, not you. Send the answer to me. Send your complaints at the obscurity of the question to Lucy. Is it is that global or UK? It's got to be UK. Looking at the figure that I'm looking at, average viewership. Ooh. Yeah, on Sky. Oh, so it wasn't free to air. No. Okay. One minute until the morning meeting. Who's going to get there first? Will Luke be able to go into it saying, sorry, I'm a minute late, but I have good news. I've won the quiz again. This is so, so random. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I've got Liam's answer. I've got Luke's answer. Maybe this is the weekend where the underdog does it. The less fancied side come through late on and steal victory. I can tell you, listener, that Liam Toomey is this week's winner of the quiz. Uh, The actual answer we were looking for was 3.16 million. Liam said 2 million. Luke said 1.5 million. So neither of you were what we could call close. But Liam, you've done it. And neither of us are getting invited on Sky anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Grossly underestimating their reach. Uh, Yeah, just humbled. Humbled by this entire experience. You can enjoy your dog walk now. You can slink off to your morning meeting with your tail between your legs. And um, it's it's fine. Maybe learn a little bit about Branislav Ivanovic or something while you're there. All right, that'll do us for today. Uh, Thanks to Liam, Luke and to Lucy. Go to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod to sign up if you want. A subscriber as well as Liam's piece on whether Chelsea can afford to win the Carabao Cup. You can read Simon's Malang musings on what's happened to Mr. Saar and where he might be in the future. Leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. That'd be much appreciated. And you can follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at SOCobbandPod. Back with another show on Monday. Speak to you then. Have a great weekend. The Athletic.